Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him radio show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. Take a minute and listen. I Work For Him, is, it's not a program that you sign up for. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your Christ-following paradigm. It's a revolution that's happening in the workplace, and it's about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is ignored. Keep in mind that your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, a used car salesperson, your work, it matters to God. And he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. And in your workplace, to recognize that that's your mission field. And in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Now, I know you've heard me say this tons and tons of times, but every day we need to be reminded that going to work is not just to draw paychecks so we can buy groceries. Going to work every day is an opportunity to be a light for Christ. Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways to incorporate your faith into your workplace. I don't come to you as an expert. I don't come to you as somebody that's got this all figured out. I'm just one guy trying to live my life transparently so that you can maybe gain something in order to be an effective witness for Christ in your workplace. Our paradigm shift is described like this. Romans 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work For Him Zone. I hope you're never the same. In our never-ending I Work For Him desire to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways that will challenge the way you think about faith and work, today we're talking about making God the issue in today's cultural rhetoric and just in dealing with the cultural as a whole. And today's focus is really going to be on morality. If morality doesn't have a basis in God, then morality has no basis. I've got Brad Bright with me, a return guest, because it was so fun the last time. I asked Brad if he'd come back. In fact, I asked Brad if he'd come back for the entire week as we really take on changing the tide of the argument in the American culture and making God the issue. Brad Bright, welcome back to the I Work For Him show. Jim, it's great to be back. This will be fun. Yes, it should be a good time. Hey, before we get started, I want to read a couple of scripture verses. First, I never get a chance to do this, but out of the Old Testament, from First Chronicles twelve thirty two, it says, "From the tribe of Issachar, there are twelve. There were two hundred leaders of the tribe with their relatives, and all these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take." And that's 
what we're doing here today. We're expecting the business leaders, the people in business that own businesses, that are leading businesses, that are supervising the businesses to understand the signs of the times and help change the tide of the argument in America that keeps pushing God to the sidelines because it says in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built in a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and stick it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. And that's what this week is all about, Brad. Sure is. I, you know, if we could just help people understand who God calls us to be, I just believers, followers of Jesus to understand what it is God is really calling us to be, I think just as a overflow result, culture would change. Well, and that's what we're hoping for. We need some cultural change. And really, you know, we always hope and pray for that it would start at the top, that the leaders in our culture, whether it be Hollywood, unfortunate leaders of our culture, whether it be Hollywood or Washington, D.C., would lead with some positive change. But that will never happen if we don't start building, if we don't start training up men to lead in this country like Christ led, loving their wives like Christ led the church and leading their families in a godly basis. If we, if we, if we would disciple strong men to lead as Christ would lead and then we would build strong families and if we build strong families and we build strong children within those families that's how we change this country one family at a time actually one person one at person. a time change change in society starts in my home doesn't Man. start anywhere else it starts in my home and it goes from there and if I, I'm not willing to say change starts here we're never going to get to where we want to go Mm, those are powerful words. All right, but the show's over. That's a good one. Okay. <laughs> hey, I want to invite people to call in today during the show, just in case they want to you know, they want to challenge us on something. As long as you're on the phone, I'm good with that because you're really good in an argument. I can see how politics suited you very, very well. In fact, I'd like to say right now on the air, I'd like to ask you to be my running mate, and together I think we should run for the presidency of the United States in 2016 because the two. <laughs> Why would I want to do that to my family? I don't know. I don't know why I want to do it to my family. I want to do it for the families of the 380 million people in this country. That's what I want to do it for. It's not that I want it, but Moses didn't want his job either, Brad. Keep that in mind. Moses didn't want his job, and he didn't get his first real job till he was 80. So we're, we're, we're waiting. You're right, but you understand one thing. It's the reason I love politics. Politics can only deal with symptoms. It mm. can't deal with root causes. Ah, that's powerful. Are you sure? Yes, and we could talk about that some today, and I think we'll talk about it a lot more in in the days to come. I don't Our know. Politics has its role, and we need politics. We can't live without it, although sometimes I wish we could. <laughs> <laughs> but politics is not capable of addressing root causes. Hmm. They can only deal with them. But but my thoughts are in running for the presidency, and I'm not. I, my, my, you know, my daughter asked me. She goes, "Well, Dad, would you be president? or Would Brad be president?" And I said, "I don't care. I I think you could. I think you could start to impact society because I think a true conservative." could win this, but not obviously with any support from either political party. You'd have to get ground-level support because people are hunger for real, honest leadership in this country. They are hungry for it, for honesty, transparency. Uh, uh, they are. Now, are they willing to put their money behind it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That, that's a problem. There's a lot of, lot of funky money in there. All right, I got off subject. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, before we get going on that, 
talk talk to me today. You've had a very tough week, and whether you want to share that or not, I I, I wanted to, I want to hear from you. How's Christ working in your life today? Well, I have had a tough week. My mom went in the hospital. She fell, broke her shoulder, broke her hip, hit her head, and it has been a tough, tough week. But you know what thing I've learned, Jim, over the years is my focus is everything. If I focus on myself, on my circumstances, my joy and peace evaporate in a split second, even if my intentions are good. But if my focus stays on Jesus, I can have the joy and peace he promised even in the midst of incredible pain. I, I remember the first time it dawned on me. It was 1983. I was in Kansas City. I was backstage with my dad, and he got a call on the phone regarding his mother, that his mother had just passed away. And understand, he was very close to his mom. And I watched my dad's face, and in one face, same moment, same time, I saw incredible pain and incredible joy. And I thought, wow, that is Jesus. That is the reality of Jesus in the life of a person. I never forgot that moment. That moment is ingrained on my memory, and I understood following Jesus doesn't spare us from pain, Mm-mm. but it gives us joy and peace in the midst of it. And, and I want to talk about that more on, on Thursday, because I, 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 as I travel, I see most followers of Jesus don't experience the peace and joy that Jesus promised on a daily basis. There's a reason why for that, and there is a solution. And we're and on Thursday the conversation is about the attributes of God. So that's where you're saying you want to really bring that in when we, in our exactly conversation. Where I want to okay. Bring it in. All right. So cool. All right. So let's talk about your background. Not everybody knows who you are. I know that's amazing. But you had a famous father who helped who founded Campus Crusade for Christ. And when you were on the air the last time, you mentioned that there was a couple hundred thousand volunteers within Campus Crusade and twenty to thirty thousand full time employees. Is that correct? There there are twenty seven thousand full time staff around the world and about two hundred fifty thousand full trained volunteers. Of course, in many countries, um, you have to go with volunteers, not with employees. Uh, cultures or economics or, or religious context just doesn't uh, allow for it in all cases. So in many cases, it's, it's volunteers, but they're fully trained volunteers around the world. Um, it's been phenomenal to see what, what, is God, what God did in 50 years through one man who showed up and said, use me, and was serious. And that, and that was my dad. Um, you know, he started out an agnostic Growing up on a ranch in Oklahoma, he moved out to Hollywood and to make his millions, and he said in the process, my mother's prayers caught up with me. His mother was a godly <laughs> woman. His dad was an agnostic. His grandfather was an agnostic. They were, they were hard-driving uh, uh, Oklahoma boys that would put John Wayne to shame. And on Election Day, they used to get in fights all the time. On the other hand, you, you cut a deal with them. It was hard to get them to sign on the bottom line, but once they did, they shook on it. You could go to the bank on it, that they were going to keep their word. And yet they were agnostics. So when Dad went out to Hollywood, that's the model he had, and he ran into a businessman in Hollywood that said, making money is great, but Jesus Christ is the most important thing in my life. And my dad said, what? (laughs) And that was the beginning of an incredible journey for him to finding God. And as he said, his mother had prayed for him every day and night for years. And her prayers finally caught up with him. So... That was, and that was, that was my example growing up, uh, a guy who simply came to Jesus in the midst of real life. Mm. 
And that's really what we're talking about this week. You know, a lot of people go, okay, Jim, you've got, we're talking about God is the issue all week and making God the issue and fighting cultural rhetoric. What does that have to do with the workplace? And I got to tell you, it has everything to do with the workplace. This week long series that we're doing it is all about helping equip Christ followers in the workplace to know really how to defend their faith, but more so how to have conversations about God. And, and, and because there's a whole generation of kids that have grown up, I'm, I'm spoiling it, but a whole generation of kids <laughs> growing up today that really have no basis for God in their lives because it's been removed from all sectors of society or almost all sectors. So, yeah. So that's why we're doing this. So pay attention. We're going to touch on some really hot topics. And in fact, on Friday's show, we're going to talk about that. We're, we're going to deal with the the truly the cultural rhetoric today with uh, on marriage, because in Florida last week, uh, marriage was attacked one more time. God put man, marriage at the forefront of his creation. And, and it was attacked once again by man because they think they know better than God. So that's Friday's conversation. So Brad, you wrote this book, God is the issue. And then you have a whole bunch of words underneath it that, you know, abortion, injustice, loneliness, greed, addiction, violence, divorce, racism, crime, education, homosexuality. Why did you write this book, God is the Issue. I was out of a conversation my dad and I had before he passed away. And uh, we were talking about the very stuff that I ultimately put in the book. And he said, you need to sit down and write a book and put this in a book. And I said, I, I, you know, I, no, I don't. Somebody surely is somewhere has already written the book. Well, I went out and started looking around. I found academics who had written it for academics. But I'd found no one who had written this for the layperson. So I sat down and wrote it. But but the premise of the book, really, it, it all hinges on one statement my dad made, and it's this. He said we can trace all our human problems to our view of God. That's either a true statement or it's a false statement. It's not just a nice statement. It's either true or false. If it's true, then God is the issue. It really is that simple. And if you have any doubts about it, I'd recommend to people to go, go uh, to the Baylor University website, look up their study on the four views of God. Phenomenal study. And they said, if we know your view of God, we can predict how you'll come down on all the social issues, all the moral issues, a lot of the economic issues. We could even predict how you'll vote. And when I first saw that, I thought, wow, seriously? Instinctively, I had always knew that our view of God is tied to our entire belief system. It's our view of God that underlies and informs our worldview. A lot of people think they're one and the same. They're not one and the same. They're very different. Our view of God is what informs our worldview. It is not vice versa. And my view of God will determine where I come out on all these issues. It's a phenomenal study that Baylor did, and it's a massive study. But it's fascinating as you get into it. Mm. You know, you said on the show earlier last October when you were on here, you said, listen, Racism isn't wrong. Murder isn't wrong. Dishonesty isn't wrong. Homosexuality isn't wrong. Adultery isn't wrong. Unless the God of the Bible exists. Yeah. Uh, Show me how they're wrong if God doesn't exist. I I remember having a conversation with a philosophy prof at the University of Washington in Seattle. And we were just sitting there talking. He, he was an atheist, but uh, he, he wasn't uh, an obnoxious atheist, but he was, he was a convinced atheist. But we were chatting one day, and it was the most phenomenal statement came out of his mouth. And he said, Brad, it is clear there are moral absolutes in the universe. He said, this moral relativism, moral relativism that, the, that the masses believe, 
it's intellectually bankrupt. No one worth this salt, that were really worth their salt, believes in moral relativism. He said, my problem, though, is I don't know where these moral absolutes come from. And, of course, that's the problem of any atheist who doesn't believe in God. Because if God doesn't exist, frankly, intellectually, it doesn't make sense to believe in moral absolutes. There's, there's no rational source for them. I mean, I've read John Rawls, a different guy. You know, John Rawls at Harvard, different guys and their stuff. And I'm not a philosopher, but it is, it is so easy to pick apart their thinking and the flaws in their thinking of trying to create a moral system apart from the existence of God. There is no such thing as moral obligation if God doesn't exist. I'm not obligated to be moral if God doesn't exist. And there's obviously correlations between that and the workplace, because there's a lot of people that, that are critical of what goes on in the workplace. You know, Actually, there's so many people that think corporations are evil and that, that business practices are evil, when, when really this is the basis for the conversation all weekend. And when I come back, I really want to talk about the word shrewdness, <laughs> because because Jesus, Jesus talked about shrewdness and how we need to be shrewd in our practices, and, and I, I want to start there because we need to have a basis. If we're going to argue the cultural rhetoric, we need to have a basis in shrewdness because we need to know how to start these conversations. All right, so I want you to define shrewd because Jesus complimented the shrewd manager, and, and it takes some shrewdness in order to be able to, uh, to approach this issue of making God the issue in our culture. So talk to me. What, is, what does being shrewd mean to you? Mean to me now? That's a cold. That's a that's a question framed by our culture. When you say mean to mean to you, that makes me the starting point. <laughs> okay, don't twist it. Just answer the question. <laughs> well, bottom line, you know, in Matthew ten, Jesus said, "I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves." That's Jesus, not suggestion. That's his command: be shrewd, be innocent. In Matthew chapter twenty-two, he modeled what. He meant. Remember the situation where Jesus said, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, came to Jesus and said, O thou wise master, tell us, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, they're setting a trap for him. And, and Jesus could smell, smell a skunk a mile off. And Jesus said, okay, show me a coin. And they didn't. He said, he said whose face is on it? Caesar's. He said, right. But you know, there was an interesting thing he said before he even got there. Before he said, show me a coin, he said, hypocrites, show me a coin. On the very front end, he called their play. He called their bluff. You know, Jesus uses the term hypocrites 20 times in the Gospels. It was one of Jesus' favorite terms. We say, you know, Jesus talked about love, and he did. But he also, when people tried to stop the message from going forward, he oftentimes took out his sledgehammer and confronted them directly. Said, "Hypocrites, show me a coin." All right. So, how does that apply to shrewdness <laughs> but, but, but in ten they, seconds but or less? He showed him a coin, and here's what he did. He said, "Whose face?" They said, "Caesar's." And he said, "Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's." He's answered the question there, hasn't he? But Jesus wasn't interested in answering questions. He had an agenda, and his agenda is, "Who is God, and why does it matter?" And so he said, "And render unto God what is God's." He always brought it back to the point. Proverbs four twelve. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Do you keep a steady course at work? Keep a steady course in business by choosing three action steps each month that will make the biggest difference toward achieving your long-range plans. Each day, focus on work that advances these goals. Step by step, you will stay on track toward meeting them. One reason for losing focus is plain old fatigue. Effective managers will maintain a healthy balance at work. 
Like a marathon runner who holds a steady pace that can be maintained for miles, you must work at a pace that allows time for rest and leisure. Save time each week for a date with your spouse, time with the kids, and time alone with the Lord. Schedule it in your planner and keep your commitments. Run a steady course at work and finish well. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Proverbs 4.12. We got to talk about shrewdness. And and first of all, why does shrewdness fit into this training program? Well, Jesus told us we're to be shrewd. And frankly, if we're going to turn things, we need to learn to be shrewd. Shrewdness is, is frankly, it's hard-headed common sense. That's really all it is, common sense, but a really big dose of it. But here's the thing. Being shrewd means understanding the difference between rolling over, reacting, or reframing. In any given situation, we can do one of those three. We can roll over, which I call the ostrich syndrome. We stick our head in the sand. We hope the situation just goes away. We don't want to deal with it. Reacting means we put our finger in the air and say, shame on you. Well, you know, that's defensive. That, that doesn't move anything forward. But when we're in a defensive posture, it doesn't move anything forward. Jesus always reframed the issue so he could go on offense. You see, when someone comes to me and asks me a question that really doesn't allow me to go where I want to, I want to reframe the question. When someone says to me, you can't pray in the name of Jesus, I respond, what do you have against Jesus? I say it nicely, but I want the other person to have to answer, answer the tough question. When someone says we need to tolerate all views equally, I respond, you know, Jesus took that a step further by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. He even said, love your enemies. I actually prefer Jesus' standard. What do you think about Jesus' standard? The point is to always make God <laughs> the starting point. I love that. And, and your I, book is so full of that stuff. I want to make sure we haven't given away the copy of the book yet. If you want to get a copy of Brad's book, you like what he's saying today on the air, call into the studio line, 855-265-2929, 855-265-2929. Get a copy of Brad Bright's book, God is the Issue. Okay. You said you had some examples, Brad, of shrewdness. Well, and I, and I, was, I, was, I was just mentioning those, those questions. It's, it's reframing those, those questions. But you know... As I think about it, one of the shrewdest people in the last hundred years in this country, it's important, I believe, was Margaret Sanger. And she is in no small part responsible for why we are today. For those who don't know who Margaret Sanger was, she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. Now then, now that you know that, you probably think her primary agenda was birth control and, and different forms of family planning. But let me tell you what she said in her private writings. She said, birth control appeals to the advanced radical because it is calculated to undermine the authority of the Christian churches. I look forward to seeing humanity free someday from the tyranny of Christianity. You see, birth control was an end, was a means to an end. She said it's calculated to undermine the authority of the Christian churches. See, Margaret Sanger understood where the real battle lay. Most of us really don't. She was shrewd. Unfortunately, she was on the other side. Bill Clinton was shrewd. Remember when he said, it depends on what the meaning of his is? <laughs> yeah, that was but just... Let me some... ask you a question. What was, did he say that in response to? Um, he said it in response to oh, the question. I can't remember the question exactly. but uh, And I'll bet you most of our listeners can't remember what the, what it was about either. You see, he got you distracted. He got you, It depends on the meaning of it. Well, wasn't the question, distracted. did you have sex and, with a woman? Wasn't that the question? 
Yeah, yeah that's, that was the context. But you see, he got you distracted, and then he was able to get back onto his message. He distracted you, got you off, off focus, and then he went back on message. Bill Clinton was the shrewdest politician I've seen in my lifetime. I don't care what you think of his politics or as an individual. The man is shrewd. He was, and he is. He, he was an eloquent speaker, too. I mean, he could... He wasn't just, well, sometimes he got wonkish, but he knew. <laughs> he knew how, 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 to, how to connect with people. He knew how to do it. He knew how to frame his issues. He knew how to go into offense. Okay, so let's let's come off of talking about him and let's okay, talk about sorry, God. Sorry. Let's talk about God. No, it's okay. I just want to grab it back. You know, mo- much of the cultural rhetoric, rhetoric out there is a twist on real truth or a twist on what God intended to be good when he created it all. And, and Satan, you know, he was the one, he was crafty. He was crafty in the garden and he twisted. He said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the, in the garden? And, and that wasn't what God said. God just said you shouldn't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And so Satan started off with a twist. So he redirected God's truth. And that's really why we have the culture we have today is because there's just these slight twists on on what is versus what isn't. So how how do we start fighting these twists of the enemy? Well, first of all, you have to know what they are. Look, look, look what he's doing. He's tricked us into talking about tolerance rather than love. My example earlier was moving from the word tolerance to the word love. He's tricked us to talk about happiness rather than deep abiding joy. He's tricked us into talking about therapy rather than peace. You, you see, the enemy always comes up with his substitutes. They're close enough, he can substitute the words in for the real thing. It's a counterfeit. And once we start accepting the words of the counterfeit message, we lose. We have to start talking about the real thing. Jesus, Jesus said we're to love each other. We're not to be tolerant. We're to love each other. Tolerance means whatever you want's okay. Love means no matter what, I'm by your side. And if you do something that's wrong, I'll forgive you. Love is about forgiveness. Tolerance is about getting rid of forgiveness so we don't even need it, because everything's okay. Tolerance and love are radically different concepts. Happiness and joy. Happiness has to do with my circumstances. Joy is despite my circumstances. Therapy is helping me to deal with stress. Whereas if we experience God's peace, that deals with the stress. It replaces the stress in our lives, even in the midst of stressful situations, like we're going through this week with my mom. You know, we get our focus back onto Jesus, and it takes care of it. You know, when, when uh, well, I won't, I won't get off, off subject here. Sorry. Go ahead, go, go, ahead. Go, go where you're going. That's fine. I can take it. Well, you know, when, when you remember the, when Jesus, the story of Jesus walking on the water, I realized it's really about Peter walking on the water. Remember Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water toward Jesus? And he got halfway out. Now, my question was, is, is when Peter's halfway out to Jesus, out of the boat, is he in any danger? No. And now let's, let's get him out the rest of the way, gets out toward Jesus, and he starts sinking. Now he's in mortal danger. My question is, what has changed? Are the waves any, any lower or less radical? Is it, is it still dark out there? Is it nasty? Is the wind still whipping around? Is, did the water itself change where, where before it was hard and now it's soft? No. None of his circumstances changed. The only thing that changed was Peter's focus. And by changing his focus, he went from being absolutely safe to being in mortal danger. That little story of Peter walking on the water 
is the perfect, perfect example of what it means to follow Jesus. As long as we keep our eyes on Jesus, we're perfectly safe. But the moment we take them off, no matter how good our intentions are, we're in mortal danger. We, we just are from a spiritual perspective. We have, it's, it, the Christian life is all about your focus. Is it about doing the right thing, or is it about following Jesus? And if it's about doing the right thing, I can assure you right now that you're a frustrated Christian. Because you and I both know you can never be good enough to please God in your own effort. You can never live the Christian life in your own effort. The only way to do it is to follow Jesus. You can't fix yourself. If you could, why did Jesus have to die? <laughs> That's right. And But you can fix your view of God. And I'll promise you, if you do, you'll wake up in the near future and go, I've changed. Well, and that's, I mean, it's so powerful. I mean, because, you know, we we can't, yeah, all right, I don't need to add anything to what you said. It was was amazing. (laughs) It was amazing. All right, but our listeners, they, they find it overwhelming to think about being able to discuss these issues with our friends, the, the family, co-workers, that they're concerned about losing friendships over discussions about these things. And, and really, your philosophy is, hey, we're not really talking about these symptoms. We just need to bring it back to God is the issue. And, and so yeah. let's talk about that, because debating, as you said, debating issues apart from the larger context of God himself, I'm quoting you, is the practical equivalent of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic while it sinks beneath the waves. Okay, so how frame this up. I mean, we're in the workplace. We've got people that, that, that are criticizing us about whatever, tolerance, being intolerant, whatever it may be, whether you're the business owner, a supervisor, or just some person at the low level of the organization. How can we start changing the tide in our culture by learning how to, to have these conversations? Well, well, two things. First of all, your goal is not to win an argument. It's to win a person. And if you want to win a person, you don't have an argument, you don't have a debate, you have a conversation. So if they make a good point, you say, you know, that's a really good point. But have you thought about X? Too many times we think we have to win the argument. We're not called to win the argument. We're called to win the person. Let me tell you one of my first experiences after I got out of college and I was in Washington, D.C. in politics, and one of my coworkers came up to me one day and said, you're not one of those born-agains, are you? And you know what my response was? It was, uh, 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 uh. And I decided then and there I will never again be caught flat-footed. But that's where I started. I had no idea how to answer a simple question in a way to really turn it into a conversation. But here's the point. You need to have conversations, not debates. Your goal is to win a person, not an argument. And if you lose sight of that, you might as well close up shop right now and quit have a, quit trying to engage. Because people don't want to lose arguments. <laughs> None of us do. And when I get my, my, my back up against the wall, I, I, I want to I wanna strike back. And that's true of everyone out there. So keep that in mind in the workplace. You want to engage them in conversations not debates. So, I, you know, this over Christmas, I was at a, at a friend's Christmas party, and it was down in Windermere, and I started talking with this one couple and, and came to find out they were Jewish. And we ended up talking for an hour and a half. We were, the, we were three of the last people out of there. And by the end, 
they said, can we get together again? Now, here I am, an evangelical Christian, and, and, and they're, they're committed Jews. But, you know, I was able to talk with them, have a conversation. I listened to them. And I picked upon, up on what their needs were. And at one point they said something about their daughter, and I said, your daughter went to public school, didn't, didn't she? They said, well, yes. I said, let me tell you how I knew. And I said, in light of that, here's what I suggest you do. But I said, bottom line, your daughter's problem isn't a behavioral problem. It's about her view of God. Let me explain. And they were eating out of my hand because, one, I listened to them, and I responded to their felt needs. So... I was going to get together with them over Christmas, and I got sick as a dog, and then my, my mom went to the hospital. But I want to get back together with them. They're wonderful people. I enjoyed the conversation, even though there's a lot of things we don't, disagree, we don't agree on. But understand the people in front of you. God puts them in front of you. Treat them as such. But Give most, them value. But people get very uptight when they're like, well, how, I don't know what to say. I mean, Brad, you're trained at this. You, you knew how to respond to this. You know, uh, people stutter like I just did there. I mean, it's like, okay, how do we engage it? Because it does put us on the defensive. Uh, I've had many, many questions. <laughs> my, my last uh, conversation with a Jewish rabbi was, oh, you're a follower of the Nazarene. I said, yeah, I guess you could call him that. <laughs> like, absolutely. <laughs> well, that was just a, they didn't start, well, that was just a lie about him raising from the dead that, you know, that those guys planned all that. I'm like, really? Yeah, I read that in the Bible that they planned that. Yeah, no. I mean, I didn't know how to take the conversation. The guy's a Jewish rabbi. I'm like, I'm not going to argue with the guy, but because I, I didn't know where to go with it. I honestly didn't. So if I don't know, and I'm always using my mouth to do something, how can we get trained in this? I mean, your book is very good about bringing people through. But how can, we, how can we exercise this part of our lives? Well, you, you have to start somewhere. And you know, it's okay not to know everything. I still don't know everything. And every now and then I'll get in a situation where I have to really think through, what do I do here? That's okay. That, that's good. But, but, you know, you can sit down and read God is the Issue. And actually, I'd, I'd suggest you read it. You know, people get it with three or four of their friends. Read a chapter, sit down on Friday night, get beer, Coke, or, or I mean, beer, I mean, pizza and a beer, pizza and a Coke. I'm sorry if people are offended by beer, but just start wherever you are is the point. Um, and read the book and talk about it. Talk it through. What does it mean? The other thing is, you know, Josh McDowell wrote a book, More Than a Carpenter. That will really help you understand some of the basic issues regarding the resurrection. You know, there was more, there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there was that Napoleon ever fought at the Battle of Waterloo. Most people don't understand it. When you say that, people go, oh, okay. Well, you know, just some simple things like that. And more than a carpenter will really give you some just the basic stuff. It's written for the layperson. It doesn't have all the information that will overwhelm you. It's written for the layperson so you understand the basic flow of the conversational of the conversational argument if you want to call it an argument but it's it's really the apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, when we come um, back from but our, it's simple. Now we only have a few minutes left so I want to tell you that ahead of time because I know that you like to go on but I really want to give people a piece of meat for today so that they could take home and chew on it. In talking about the basis of morality and, and the fact that there is no basis if people don't consider God. So kind of take that conversation and run with it and give people something they can chew on overnight. Well, it's like you, you mentioned at the beginning. Look, if God doesn't exist, then morality is a fairy tale just like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. And I challenge anyone to prove me wrong on that. Anyone. You see, God's existence is the starting point. And if 
he doesn't exist, let's go home. Because the, it's, the, it's the starting point. So many times we talk about morality and immorality totally apart from the existence of God. Uh, why? Because nothing is immoral if God doesn't exist. But here's the bottom line. We need to start with ourselves. And it's not to start with ourselves to make sure we're moral. It's to start with ourselves making sure we understand who God is. Because if we don't understand who God is, it's going to influence our own morality. You know, one of the things I love to tell people is that unlike the federal government, you can't give away what you don't own. You can't. The federal government may be able to do that. We can't. Not possible. So if you have a broken view of God, all you can do is give away a broken view of God. And if you have a broken view of God, it is going to show up in your moral behavior. A.W. Tozer, who is a great theologian, he said, it's impossible to keep our moral practices sound while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. Impossible. He didn't say it's hard. He said it is impossible. You see, it's our view of God that informs our moral character. And, and the further down our, our view of God declines the harder it is going to be made to, do, to maintain moral character. Again, the Baylor study bears all that out. It shows how a person's view of God impacts the way they believe and uh, the way they behave and, and what they believe in culture. So, so well, let's, I still am looking for that piece. Of, I mean, that's great. That is very good. A good summation of the beginning of the argument for the week. But let's give somebody the piece of meat. So they're having a conversation with people. How can we introduce this subject? Instead of waiting for somebody to put us on the defensive, how can we introduce this conversation in the workplace? Well, there, there are, frankly, so many opportunities that come up as people talk about current events. Um, but, you know, people say... That was wrong. And you say, well, why was it wrong? Well, because it was wrong. I say, yeah, but why was it wrong? <laughs> I say, well, what do, you, what, do you, what do you mean? Of course it's wrong. And I say, well, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with that if God doesn't exist. Well, what do you mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, it's to begin engaging the conversation. And, and there's, if you listen, if you listen to what people are saying in the workplace around you, you know, there are going to be opportunities, and frankly, it's the best way to do it, because then you can do it conversationally. We all have a hard time engaging the conversation just cold. We do. Even I do. It's hard just to say, have you thought about God today? <laughs> there may be a few people who can do it and get away with it. Most of us can't. I, I listen for the opportunities. You know, if someone is hurting, I say, you know, you know, would you mind if I pray for you? And you're going to find people say, oh. Oh, would you? Would you really? And that's a great starting point. When people are hurting, they love it when people care about them. And by saying, can I pray for you? It's a great way to be in opening that door. And I've seen that happen again and again and again. That opens a lot of doors for further conversations on down the road. But remember, these are people with real needs, and your goal is to win them. It's not to win the argument. And so by serving them through praying for them, or, or, you know, if their, their kid is sick or the kid's in the hospital, you can say, you know, I was praying for you for your son last night. You were? Yeah. Would you like me to keep doing that? Yeah, I would love you to. You see, people, people appreciate that. It touches them, and it opens the door for us to have further conversation. Hmm. You, you don't have to do it all. I'll get it all done today. If God gives you the opportunity to walk through that door, 
and and go through a gospel presentation with them, do it. But take the opportunities you have today to make God the issue, and you can do it through something as simple as saying, can I pray for you? That's a great one. That's a great place to end. Tomorrow night, more of this, taking it to the next level and really starting to give us some solid, even more solid ways to just bring this back to our workplace and, and know how to answer these questions because we need to start changing the cultural rhetoric and start turning it back, turn the tide back to recognizing God. You're listening to the I Work For Him show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower who owns my own business, but ultimately, I work for him.